0: Good evening, everyone. Glad to see everybody about here today. Beautiful day outside, isn't it? It hit 90 today. Summertime is here, officially. It is hot, yeah. Especially work outside. It wasn't too bad in the air conditioning at work, but I can imagine outside. <laughs> okay, so we are in, still in Chapter 8 of the Dedicate. this is like Chapter 8, Part 2. Um, covered the first part last Wednesday about fasting. today we're going to talk about praying and the background verses, if you will go ahead and turn there is Matthew 6 verses 5 through 13 and we'll get to those in a minute. Anybody got one? Okay. So, dedicate chapter 8, part 2. It says, "Um, Do not pray like the hypocrites, but rather as the Lord commanded in His gospel like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, or evil, for yours is the power and the glory forever. Pray this three times each day. So this is the, uh, the Lord's Prayer in the Didache. Um, so just as Christians should distinguish themselves from the past using fasting, like we talked about last week, now we're going to see how the Christians should pray differently as well as the didache author put it do not pray like the hypocrites but rather as the lord commanded in his gospel um in luke we see the disciples asking jesus to teach them how to pray we see this in luke chapter 11 verse 1 it says now jesus was praying in a certain place and when he was finished one of his disciples said to him lord teach us to pray as john taught his disciples And then we'll go to background verses, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. And this is how Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. from the evil one so that is how Jesus taught his disciples how to pray so we see in Matthew 6 similar instructions about prayer from Jesus as we did fasting last week which said do not be like the hypocrites who seek the glory of men they said to pray in private he said because your father who sees in secret will reward you and do not make long prayers like the Gentiles So the example of how to pray that Jesus gave his disciples has become known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, The prayer is short, it's simple, and it's divided in two parts. The first part deals with the glory of God, and the second part deals with the wants of man. Only when we give God his proper place, which is first, the rest will take care of itself. So as we pray, we should always put God first and then our needs second because it's all about God, correct? So, in the Didache, the Christian is told to pray this prayer three times a day, which corresponds to the Jewish custom of praying. Um, we see example of this in Daniel um, chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel would pray three times a day facing Jerusalem. And if you remember, it was this practice that got him thrown into the lion's den during that time. So, this, is, this was a Jewish custom, and this is what the Didache author was talking about. Now, Paul goes even further than that. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, He instructs us to pray without ceasing. And what it means to pray without ceasing is to always have our minds on the things of God and be in constant communication with God. So, one, we are to pray. There's no doubt about that. Jesus taught His disciples how to pray, and we should be praying continually all the time, focusing on the unseen things focusing on God, and just in communication with Him, in a fellowship with Him, and abiding in Him. That's the purpose of prayer. So, so let's go through the Lord's Prayer to better understand its meaning and its significance. So we'll just go through each one and kind of break it down a little bit. So it starts out, Our Father. Now Our Father, this statement when Jesus said this, would have been shocking to the Jews of the time. Because the Jews didn't see God as their father. Uh, no Jew would have said that God is my father in any personal way. God was the father of the Jewish nation, but the Jews understood that their father was Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. They didn't see God as their father. So this would be shocking at the Jews for the Jews at the time. The Jews believed that when God created Adam, He was a son of God, but when he sinned and fell, his offspring would have been born in that sin nature, and so no longer would have been a son of God. So ever since the fall, the Jewish people didn't see themselves as sons of God or as God as their father. We see this in John chapter 8, in verse 33 and 39. In verse 33, the Jews claim to be offspring of Abraham. And in verse 39, they tell Jesus when they're talking that Abraham is our father. Jesus was telling them their father was the devil, and they said, no, Abraham's our father. But they never said God is our father, because they didn't see God that way. So Jesus, at this time, was teaching a radical new truth. Go with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 16. And Paul talks about this radical new truth. So in Romans 8, verse 14 through 16, Paul tells us, "For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. So, if you're a born again believer, if you've accepted Christ, then you have been adopted into the family of God and you have the right to call God Father. And in this verse, He says Abba Father, which was a very personal relationship between the Father and the child. So, we have that privilege to call God Father. So I'm, I'm calling them anchor points. You can say main points, anchor points, summaries. But the first anchor point as we go through this is we serve a personal God, and that's important. He's not a distant God. I can tell you, when I was in college, um, I remember one of my classes, the um, instructor talked about God, and he presented God as a watchmaker. You guys probably heard this before, where he kind of created the world and everybody in it, set it in motion, and then left it alone to just go about its day-to-day stuff. That's not the God we serve. That, that um, teacher wasn't correct, and that's not the God we serve. We serve a personal God who cares about us, cared about us so much to send a son even. So, and you can't get much personal than a father and his child. So that was one. Next is heaven. So heaven in this verse is plural. Um, you could read it as in the heavens. In Scripture, we see there's three heavens. You've got the first heaven, which is the atmosphere. It's the, uh, the air we breathe, the space surrounding us. Uh, the second heaven is the celestial heavens, which is the outer space, stellar heaven, moon, sun, stars. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is the throne of God, is where the throne of God is. This heaven is beyond our reach, our sight, and it's called the heaven of heavens. And this is where God throne is. Um, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 (laughs) verse 2 through 3 it says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. This third heaven that he was talking about is God's throne. It's where the throne is. And he called it a paradise. So anchor point number 2 is we have a Father in heaven who loves us as a personal Father, Abba, and will someday take us to paradise to be where He is. And we see this as Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare, prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So that's the promise of Jesus. And we can believe that promise because we know that God is in heaven. And we know that Paul, whether in the body or out of the body, was taken to this third heaven and saw this place. And if you remember what Jesus told the thief on the cross, When he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did he say? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the exact same word Paul used in 2 Corinthians. The third heaven is paradise. That's our second anchor point. God loves us. He's our father. And one day he's going to take us to where he is, which is in paradise, the third heaven. So that is an anchor point that we can stake our truths and our beliefs on. All right, next. Hallowed be your name. So another way to say this is, let your name be holy. And when God is when God was leading His people out of Egypt, He sent an angel ahead to tell His people to obey Moses. We see this in Exodus uh, chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-one, and the angel said, "Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him." So for God, all that God is, all that God stands for is in his name. His name was that important. And um, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. God's name is serious. So serious that the, the, the name of God for the Jewish people, that were, were, they, they, they reverenced it so much that they dare not even pronounce it. And because they didn't pronounce it, they have totally lost the pronunciation of God. They say that Yahweh is probably the closest way to pronounce God, but they don't know because the Jewish people were so scared they was going to mispronounce it or use it in a wrong context that either God would be angry with them or they would blaspheme the name and be put to death so they wouldn't even say God's name. And through that time, they lost the trans translation of it or the pronunciation of it so how do we make god's name hallowed or holy we do it by living godly lives holy lives that's acceptable to him and so because we are witnesses to this world and people need to see god and understand who god is so that's how we can do it and you think about this how important is your name i think i think names are very important because your name Or or your word is the most important thing that you have. Once you tarnish your name or your word, people look at you differently. All of a sudden, they don't trust you. They don't believe what you say. Uh, They may talk about you. You know, we talk about people coming from good families. You know, who's your mama? Who's your grandmother? That kind of deal. Our names are important. How much more important is God's name? So we want to make sure that we keep our name good and holy in the community so people see us in a certain way. God also wants His name to be that way. And we as Christians, you know, what does Christian mean? Christ-like. So we as Christians, we should live our life like that. If we care about our name and how people see our name and treat us because of our name, how much more should we care about God's name and how we act and what we do? I can mess my name up and do something dumb and you guys can't trust me anymore, I'm okay with that. But if I do something dumb, and people don't trust God, that should hurt us so bad that we should never want to do that. Because if you don't trust me, no big deal. But if you don't trust God, you won't go to Him, and you may not be saved, and you may not follow Him. I don't want to be that stumbling block for somebody. So that's how important God's name is. So if we act otherwise... As bad Christians or bad people, we see in Romans two twenty four what bad behavior looks like. And it says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I don't know about you, but I don't want God's name blasphemed because of me. So the way we live and the way we act can make God's name holy or dishonored among, among people. So, anchor point number three, God is holy and trustworthy, and he always keeps his promises. Y'all go to Hebrews chapter six. Because his name is hallowed and holy, we can trust it. And we see this in Hebrews chapter six, verse 17 through 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So, God's name is holy, God's name is trustworthy. It says here that it's impossible for God to lie, and we set our hope on that. It says we set our hope on this, the hope that is before us, and we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And we can have an anchor of our soul on God and His promises because we know His name is hallowed and He does not lie. And we can trust Him and we can believe Him because His name is hallowed. And then we should live our life to continue to make sure His name is hallowed and uh, people see that through us. What, What is the old saying where it says, share the gospel and if you have to, speak? You know, we share the gospel more with the way we live our lives than what's coming out of our mouth a lot of times. And, and make no mistake about it, I learned a long time ago, if you're a professing Christian, people watch you more than you think, more than you think. And we have that responsibility. All right, next, your kingdom come. So if you look around today, we all know his kingdom has not yet come because this world is a messed up place. And I think it's getting worse. Um, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord. And he said, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Luke four seventeen, we see Jesus proclaiming the same message. Where he said, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, John and Jesus in the Gospels never explained what they meant by that. And the reason was the Jewish people already knew exactly what they meant by the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go to 2 Samuel verse uh, chapter 7. Because the Jewish people had been looking for a Messiah. Remember, this was 400 years of silence before Jesus came. They'd been looking for a Messiah They've been looking for his kingdom to come. And now John the Baptist is preparing the way, and then Jesus comes along, and they talk about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is what the scripture, that they would have known what they were talking about. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 17. It says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the prophecy was an offspring of David, a descendant of David, which was the coming kingdom, which was the prophecy, prophecy of the Messiah, which was Jesus in the flesh, and him coming and setting up his internal, eternal kingdom on the earth. So they knew that this was the hope and prayer of every Jew, and today, it still should be the hope and prayer of every Christian when we say, your kingdom come. Because we need help in this world. There's sickness. There's death. There's all this bad stuff going on. And I don't know about you. I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I mean, if he came back today, it wouldn't be too soon for me. So I can definitely pray, your kingdom come. So anchor point number four, God promised the Messiah. He delivered on that promise when Jesus was born, of the virgin birth. And Jesus promised to come back and set up His eternal kingdom, and we know that God does not lie, and He keeps His promise. And then I love this verse, Revelation 21, verses 2-4. through It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what we're praying for when we say, your kingdom come. All right, next. You will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the tough one because this is where we come in. So it's God's intention for his will to someday prevail on the earth. Um, Right now, rebellion is broken out. We live sinful lives. There's unbelieving people. God has been rejected. The vast majority of people have no time for God. They don't want anything to do with God. Um, So when we say this verse, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven, what we're praying for, what we're pledging, is our allegiance to God and a submission to his rule in our life. So for asking God's kingdom and for God's will to be done is really surrendering to God. So we pray your will be done, not our will be done. And that's difficult. I don't know about you, but it's difficult for me a lot of times because a lot of times I want my will to be done. And I don't always like God's will in my life because God's will can be tough sometimes for us. But that's what we're praying when we say this. And it's important to know that in heaven, everybody submits to God's will. That's why it's heaven. You know, there is no sin in heaven, there's no hate in heaven, there's no war, there's no sorrow. Instead, you got love, peace, joy. As Paul called it, as Jesus called it, paradise. And if we could live our lives as kingdom citizens now, that's what this world would be like. It would be paradise. But we know that's impossible. Because just like Adam's son, we were born into a sin nature. We are going to sin. We can't help it. The Bible says... If you say you have no sin, you make him a liar because we're all sinful. So for us, we should strive, we should try to live kingdom citizens as kingdom citizens because we're kind of in training today to live eternity with God someday. So if we're going to live with God for eternity someday and we have to submit to him and we have to obey him, then why not start now? Why rebel now? And then rely on his good graces to forgive us to someday live in heaven with him and not rebel. So we should strive to not sin. We should strive to put other people first. We should strive to put God first in our life. Because we're in training to live with him forever someday. And I've said this before that people who reject God, that doesn't want anything to do with God, and their life is all about them heaven would be a miserable place because they would not want to submit to God's rule. They just wouldn't. And so heaven would not be a fun place. So for us, we as Christians, we should start that training today and try to obey him. We see in Luke um, chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus asked a question to his audience. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Is anybody guilty of that? I'm guilty of that. You don't have to raise your hands. I'm guilty of that, right? And in John 14, 15, Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we as Christians who believe we have a father in heaven that's going to come and take us to paradise someday, we should live our life that way now. Because I think what some people don't understand, the moment that you're saved, you have eternity in heaven at that moment. It's not some moment in the future. It's not someday I'll be adopted into his family. It's not someday I'll have a home in heaven. The day that you're saved, the day that you believe, your home is built in heaven and is waiting for you. And we're just waiting for God to come take us away. Or we're waiting for it's our time to pass from this life to the next. So as, as we as Christians, once we're saved, we should be as kevin talks about becoming a disciple of christ to be like christ to follow christ to deny ourselves, and we should live like kingdom citizens because we are preparing ourselves today so when we do meet god when he does take us to paradise we want to hear him say well done good and faithful servant and then we're already prepared to submit to his will and to his lordship in heaven because we've been preparing on this earth whether it's 10 years 20 years or 100 years we're ready for that so why wait until you go to heaven to submit to his will start it now start it now so we're to love god and obey him now and forever because there will be no rebels in heaven because everyone will submit to god in heaven so anchor point five we will never be perfect and to me, to me, that's the big lie. You know, God tells us, Jesus told us, that the devil is a liar from the beginning. And what the devil wants no more to do than us is to get us to live defeated lives. We know that we're never going to be perfect. We know that we're never going to submit to God 100% on this earth. I don't want to say it's okay, because you don't want to say it's okay, but it's okay. Because we have the sin nature. We should be battling. Paul talks about, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. It's this battle inside of us. But we should be striving to obey God. And and we should be striving to do His will. As Paul talks about running the race, we should run our race to win. We shouldn't run our race to fail. But as we are running this race, I look at it that, you know, Jesus called us to follow Him. Well, most of the time for me, I feel like I'm stumbling behind him most of the time because I stumble. I try to follow him and then I take my eyes off him and I focus on this world or I focus on my troubles or I focus on myself and then I start stumbling because then I'm I'm trying to make it through this world in my own strength and my own power instead of focusing on him. And then by doing that, that's when it becomes my will be done, not God's will be done. So... We're supposed to obey God, strive, run the race if we fall, when we fall God is gracious. God's ready to forgive. And God will pick us up and say get back in the race and keep going. And guess what? We're going to fall again. And we're going to fall again. And the devil's going to tell you you're not good enough. The devil's going to tell you you're not saved. The devil's going to tell you you're you're making people blaspheme his name because of the things you're doing? Don't believe the lie. God loves you. We're not going to be perfect. And if, we're, if we confess our sins, what does it say? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Keep running the race, right? And one day when Jesus comes back, that millennium kingdom, then one day we can say for sure your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
1: And so I think that when we're understanding what it's going to be like to be in his kingdom, I I truly believe that makes it easy for us to quit rebelling Mm -hmm. and surrender because we know to be in his presence, to be under his, to to submit to him, is a place where there's no tears, there's no sorrow, there's no sickness, there's no pain, there's no death. And who don't want to submit to that? I know. Where every good and perfect gift is yours.
0: It doesn't make sense. Because the alternate the alternative is not pretty place. It's not a pretty place. And you know, it just goes back to I think people that that rebel, I, I know people that don't believe, but even I think maybe young members of the church or even older members of the church that haven't fully submitted yet, I think they take for granted and truly don't understand the price that Jesus paid on that cross. Because when you look at what Jesus did, you know, He was God. He left heaven, born of a baby, grew up for 33 years on this earth and went through everything that we go through. And that would have been enough. But no, he goes further and he dies for us. That could have been enough. But no, he goes further still and he dies on a cross. I mean, and it's just like, and for him to die on the cross, this was like the worst way to die ever. And he chose to do that. And, and, and I love this verse, when it says, "While we were still sinners, Christ died for us." We were rebellious. We didn't care. If we saw him laying in the ditch, we wouldn't have stopped to help him. And yet, he still loved us so much that he died for us on that cross. And that truth should really change our heart to the to the point we want to submit, we want to obey, because nobody. I don't care if it's your mother. Your grandmother or your granddaddy is going to love you as much as Jesus loves you. Nobody. And that should change our life. It really should. And if it's not, you still don't understand what that cross means. So that's the reason we should say your, your will be done on earth as heaven. Because we understand what Jesus has done for us. And we should want to submit to a God that loves us that much. We should want to do that. Okay, next. Give us this day our daily bread. So, we're living in a fallen world of sin. And from that day that Adam sinned, God said to him in Genesis 3, verse 19, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And from that day on, it's been hard producing fruit. Now, it's easier now because we've got tractors and we've got Walmart. But back in the Jewish times, they started to grow it. They They were planting with... Hose and it was a very strenuous work and um, so they would pray give us this day our daily bread and we do the same thing but this prayer speaks of our total dependence on God our daily wants our physical necessities all come from him and that's something we really have to understand everything that we have comes from God the strength that we have to work to make money to purchase food comes from God everything comes from God He supplies our needs day by day. We see God teaching the Israelites in the wilderness this lesson in Exodus 16, verse 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So they were only together enough for one day. And so God was teaching them to trust Him to provide for their needs. Don't take more than one day because the manna will come down tomorrow. He was teaching them that. He's still trying to teach us that today. Don't worry about your food. God's going to take care of you if you seek His kingdom first. And we see that in... Um, go to Matthew 6, verse 31 through 34. We see the same point in Matthew six thirty-one through 34. So it says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So basically, Jesus is saying, or God is saying here, that life is hard. And you're going to have trouble. But I am bigger than life. I am big enough to supply your needs. If you would just trust me, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about two years from now. Trust me now. Let me take you one day at a time. Because the bottom line is, you know, the Bible tells us, you know, who can add one hair to your head or one day to your life by worrying? You can't. There's nothing we can do about next Thursday. We don't even know if we're going to be alive next Thursday. It's only by the grace of God that we'll be here next Thursday because everything Everything comes from God, and God uses everything for our good, which is another tough verse to understand sometimes, but He does. And we're, we're to seek and focus God, and as we continue to focus on God, less time we're focusing on ourself, and we can trust Him, and He will take care of our needs. And the Bible tells us that clearly. But this is much more than just physical bread, that we should be praying for here. Deuteronomy eight three says that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter five, verse six, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And in John six, thirty-five, he tells us he is the bread of life And whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. And if you remember when Jesus was at the well talking to the woman, the disciples had left to get something to eat. And then when they came back, they're like, Master, do you want some food? And Jesus said, I don't need food. You know, I don't need that bread. Something in me is greater than the food. And this is what we're talking about here, hungering for righteousness, Um, Jesus in our life being the bread of life. That is more important than our stomachs and food on a day-to-day basis. So Jesus is meant to be our bread and our drink, our Savior, our sustainer. He's the good shepherd. He's our Lord. Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy our deepest needs. We don't always understand that. We chase after all this stuff. And what we don't understand is all this stuff, we're trying to fill this hole in our life with all this other stuff, when in reality it's Jesus is what we need. We eat all the time of this world and we're still hungry. We chase after stuff and we're still hungry. We buy stuff and we're still hungry. We get the promotion, we get the big raise. You've got people that are multi-millionaires that are still hungry. Their life is meaningless. They don't know what life is about. They don't know what the purpose of life is. It's because we're looking for our nourishment, our food, in the wrong places. It's only in Jesus where our, our main purpose and needs, our deepest needs are met. And we have to understand that as Christians. So when we say, give us this day our daily bread, it's more than just food. We're saying, Jesus, give us Our daily bread of you today. You know, the quiet time, the prayer time, the time in his word. That's what we really should be hungering for. Not food that you eat and in four hours you're hungry again. Or like me, three hours you're hungry again. You know, because it doesn't satisfy. But Jesus satisfies. In Psalm 104, 15, it talks about wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is more than bread for the stomach, oil for the physical face, and wine of the world. It is the joy of the Lord, fullness of spirit, and the bread, which is the Lord Jesus, that satisfies the heart of man. Nothing else will satisfy but Jesus. So anchor point number six, God is all we need, and he's big enough to supply our needs if we only trust him. If we will only believe, that's what we have to do. Matthew six thirty three tells us, But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Focus on the unseen things. Don't focus on the seen things, because the seen things are temporary. The unseen things are eternal. Next, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is another tough one. Remember I said it's broken up in two parts. The first part was glory of God. The second part was the wants of men. Um, does anybody have trouble forgiving people? There again, don't raise your hand. So what if God's forgiveness for us was dependent on how often we forgive or forgave other people? How much would we be forgiven? Sometimes for me, not very much. Because we all have an unforgiving heart at some point in time, Right? At least part of the time. But we are called to forgive just as Jesus forgave us. We see this in Ephesians 4, verse 32, where it says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we're supposed to forgive other people the same way that God in Christ forgave us. How did God in Christ forgive us? He died on the cross, He gave everything for us to forgive us. So thankfully, God forgives us based on what Christ has done for us and not on the basis of how we forgive other people. Thankfully, that is true. And the reason that God forgives us is because His Son came into the world, went to the cross, paid our penalty in full in the, the, the death of Christ upon the cross, paid for our sins and have been removed as far as the east is from the west, and he has put them where he remembers them no more. That's how we're supposed to forgive other people. We're not supposed to kind of forgive other people. We're not supposed to forgive other people, but really the back of our mind, never really forgive them and always think about it till we're still losing sleep at night because we're thinking about it. We're supposed to forgive other people and forget it. I'll never forget the time, it's been several years ago, There was a shooting, might have been in Texas, and it was this Amish community. I think it might have been an Amish church. And they interviewed these Amish women after the shooting, and they said, We forgive them. So their kids were just murdered, and these Amish women said, We forgive them. And I'll never forget that, because I thought, What faith is that? Because if that would have happened at my school, my kids' school, I would have had a hard time forgiving somebody for that. But these Amish women said, no, we forgive them. And that's where we should be at with us. Why? Because Christ gave, forgave us. How did he forgive us? Dying on that cross, right? So um, Colossians, y- y'all go to Colossians chapter 3 for me. Colossians 3, verse 12 through 13. Colossians 3, verse 12 through 13. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So forgiving is not a suggestion, it's a command. So it says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It is a command from God, we must forgive.
1: I think also it's important here for us to consider that forgiving and forgetting let's look at the forgetting it is, um, it's a little different than what we want to think of as literally just forgetting and wiping our minds. And the reason I say that is because God has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He has cast it to the bottom of a, the <laughs> deepest sea, right? And so He, when he looks at Bob, he refuses to connect that sin with Bob anymore. (laughs) He has said, I release Bob from the debt owed from that wrongdoing. However, God still hates that sin. God still hates the wrong. But what he has chose to do is he has made a decision that he has no longer, he will never again hold Bob accountable in any way for that sin. You go back to them Amish Go back and ask him same Amish women today, do they do they do they remember that?
0: Oh absolutely. Mm -hmm.
1: Do they still hurt God? Yes. And so, but what they make a choice to do, and this is what we have to do. We have to make a choice to say, I'm going to do toward this person even Mm -hmm. as God in Christ has done toward me. He refuses to hold me accountable. He refuses to connect me to that mm-hmm. wrong anymore. And he refuses, and he chooses to release me from the dead of that sin. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's when we understand, when we read this, I always worry, and I don't want people to think that um, this literally means that you just, if you don't forget it, then yeah. you have not really forgiven it. Yeah. Because I don't believe that's true. A true. Uh, matter of fact, when Paul would talk about being the chiefest of sinners, he had forgiven himself. But he would still go back and he would say, I persecuted the church. Mm-hmm. I, and so I think it's important that we understand that just because we can't wipe our mind of it doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven. What you have to do is make a choice that day after day you are refusing to connect this person to that hurt that you feel Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that whenever you can kind of make that connection or whenever you can kind of distinguish between what forgiveness and forgetting is um, it I think it helps you to be able to actually fulfill this command Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, because I've seen many people struggle with
0: it is what I'm saying yeah Yeah. that's a good way to put it the choice is a choice we choose to forgive never forget but we choose to forgive that's true. So anchor point number seven. We are forgiven because Christ died on the cross to forgive our sins. This truth should make such an impact on our heart that we cannot help but to forgive those who have sinned against us. It should drive us to forgive people once we understand what that cross really meant and what Jesus did. And then, of course, Romans 5.8. I said this before, but I'll say it again. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in rebellion, He chose to die for us, which to me makes no sense why Christ would die for me. But God is bigger than me. His ways are higher than my ways. I'll never understand that this side of heaven, but I'm thankful that He did. I am thankful that He did. All right, next. And do not lead us into temptation. So this word lead can give us the wrong impression because God does not lead or tempt anyone into sin. Go to James chapter 1 and we'll see this. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. So God does not lead or tempt anyone. James 1, verse 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God doesn't tempt us. We are so weak and we are so sinful sometimes we're enticed to sin, and God will allow that for a purpose. So, and we can see this, that, that, that God doesn't tempt us, but he can subject us to trials and temptations that exposes us to Satan's assaults. And we see this with the story of Job, and we see this in Peter, uh, Luke 22, verse 31 through 32. Jesus tells Peter, he says, "'Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." So Jesus didn't pray for the trial not to come. He prayed for Peter's faith not to fail. And he prayed that after the trial, he would be strengthened and he, he would go and strengthen his brothers. So God allows us to go through trials to strengthen our faith sometimes. God may go, have us go through trials to help us strengthen other people's faith sometimes, but God doesn't send us through the trials. He allows the trials to happen. And this is one of those tough truths as well, is why would God let this happen to me? Well, there's a purpose greater than ourselves in this, but that's difficult because there again, it's all about us. And when God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this for my glory, not for your glory. We struggle with that, especially when it hurts. And sometimes we know these trials can hurt. So this, this part of the prayer is a petition to God to not let us go through any temptation. But we know that's not going to happen. But we know that as we're going through these temptations, God will be there with us. Through the whole temptation, and uh, we see in First Corinthians ten thirteen, it says, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it." So, the most important part of that verse: God is faithful. It's not about the temptation. It's not about temptation is common to man. It's not about we're not going to be tempted beyond our ability. And it's not even about how God's going to provide the way of escape. It's about God is faithful. If we can keep that in mind as we're going through trials, as we're going through temptations, that God is faithful. He still loves us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And he's going to be with us through this temptation that will get us through that temptation and that trial may be unpleasant, may be difficult and may be hard, but we have to know that God is faithful and we must trust him. And, you know, a lot of times God can put you through situations to build that trust because we all know when life is going good, the last thing we think about is God. And, but when life gets hard, the first thing we think about is God. Usually the first thing we're thinking about is, God, why me? But the second thing we should be thinking about is, God, be with me through this trial. Don't leave me. Give me strength. And through that trial, through those temptations, is how we build strength and character and endurance. And um, Paul talks about that a lot. So, so this prayer expresses a healthy distrust of one's own ability to resist temptation or to stand up under trial. It acknowledges complete dependence on the Lord for preservation. We can't do this alone. And God tells us we would have troubles in this world. So anchor point eight um, says, God may allow trials to take place in our lives, but he is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. And he will provide a way of escape. And then remember Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him Whose strength is me? That is, trials has temptations. Always remember that. I can do all things. It's in his power, in his strength. If we try to get through trials and temptations on our own strength, we're toast. So where, where was he when he wrote that? Exactly. He, in a he was, yes. You know, everybody takes a verse and
1: makes it into something else. He yeah. was in a prison. Yeah. and I think oh, yeah. in story, Joe, so we get a behind the scenes thing there right Yep. but have you ever considered all the things that God has told Satan no for see all we know is the trials we go through we don't get to see the behind the scenes have you ever stopped to think how many times God has Satan has asked for you mm-hmm. and God said no Satan came and said well let me do this and he'll curse you and God said no not going to let you do that. I mean, you think about for just a second, Job, because we get a picture of that. God gave gave Satan a lot of things that he could do to Job. Job didn't just lose a job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything.
1: Job, job didn't just lose a job. Job didn't just lose his health. I mean, he was as sick a man as there probably mm-hmm. ever has been. I mean, so when you sit back and you think to yourself how many times Satan has asked and God said, no, this gives me motivation to make sure I'm Mm -hmm. understanding. I truly do have an adversary that wants to steal, kill, and destroy my faith and me. And at the end of the day, I have no power in and of myself to overcome him. He's much more powerful than I am. The only hope I have is that God don't let, don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from this evil. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I'm telling you, when I think about that, it motivates me to understand this is a very serious <laughs> prayer I need to be praying.
0: Absolutely. Because the devil is real. That's right. And spiritual warfare is real. And um, I read this last Wednesday. I read again, 1 Peter 5, 8, says, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and that is us he can't he can't get to god he can't get to jesus he can't hurt jesus what's the next next best thing hurt the people that jesus loves that's us and um absolutely so the next one is but deliver us from the evil one Um, but we should not fear because god is with us isaiah 41 10 says fear not For I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with the righteous right hand. There is a devil out there, but there is a God. The devil is real, but God is real. And it's through God's strength that we can stand our ground and be delivered from the evil one. Not in our strength, only through the strength of God. And Jesus has already defeated the devil on the cross. And we can claim that victory in his name, and God has not left us defenseless. And this is uh I know you guys know where I'm going, Ephesians six, ten through eighteen. So this is the armor of God. So I'll read this. Ephesians six, ten through eighteen. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. How are we delivered from the evil one? It's in the power of God alone. And we put on the whole armor of God. It's, that, it's our truths. It's our, the anchors to our soul. It's our beliefs. It's our faith in God. Once we lose that faith, once we get on shifting sand, we start stumbling, refocus on God, refocus on His promises. And remember, He is faithful. He will never leave and forsake us. So we've got to fight the fight in the spirit, not in the flesh, and putting on the armor of God and only in faith in God and God's strength. James 4, 7 through 8 tells us, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I'm going to repeat that. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. When the devil's attacking, when life is getting hard, run to God. Pray to God. Spend time with God. He'll draw near to you. And it's through his strength and his power we get through this world. Absolutely. So anchor port number nine in this world. We will have trouble. But Jesus has overcome this world. He's defeated the devil. And we must stand in his victory and in his strength and draw near to God. Resist the devil. And he says he will flee. He will flee. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God goes with us every place we go. Okay, last part. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Some translations add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So this is a doxology um, that was added in some manuscripts, but not all manuscripts. In the ESV, it's not there. Some Bibles, it is. A doxology is an expression or praise to God. We see this in the Bible where a prayer is concluded with a short hymn-like verse exalting the glory of God. Uh, It says in the early church, the Christians living in the eastern half of the Roman Empire would add this doxology to this when they were reciting the Lord's Prayer during Mass. And the practice, as we see, was also in the Didache. And in some manuscripts, the, the, the doxology was added by scribes copying the Scriptures. This added doxology... That's a lot of times to say doxology, isn't it? That's a tough word. Could have come from David's prayer in 1 Chronicles. And so 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10 through 13. After the people brought the offerings to, for the construction of the temple, David prayed this prayer. And he says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatest, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. So in this prayer, we see yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, and yours is the kingdom. So they think this is where this doxology came from, was this prayer in 1 Chronicles. And um, so the example of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave to teach his disciples and to teach us is to be personal, to the point, worshiping, praying from the heart. First half of the prayer is meant to praise and worship God. The second half is to ask for our needs while we pledge our submission and obedience to His will. And if we do that and put God first and pray in His will and in obedience as we follow Him, He will be with us and He will guide us and He will never leave us. He will never forsake us and He will be our strength and He will be our anchor in this world to make it through all the troubles that we will face. And we will face troubles. But Jesus said he has overcome the world. And he says, I will never leave. I will never forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. That's a promise. And as I read that verse earlier, God cannot lie because of his name His holy. That's all I've got. So.
1: and I'll use this prayer and I'll start with myself. I, I'm in the center of the circle. And why am I in the circle? Because um, I can't do anything for anybody else until I've received <laughs> it from, from God first. And so I start out praying and I thank God that he's my father. I thank him for Jesus. I thank him for what he's done. And then I pray that my family are his children too. I pray that my kids will be his children. I pray that my uh, it, or, uh, cousins are the circle is always increasing, and then I go into uh, Lord. I want you to, I want your name to be hallowed in my life. I want my life to be lived in such a way that my life honors your name. And then I move outside of the circle. I want my wife to live a life in her job and where she goes, and I want my son when he's at school to live in such a way that he honors your name. And then I move outside of the family circle to. Um, to the other extended family, or then I go to the church family, my circle is always getting bigger. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I use this as a structure to to begin praying and I start with the circle and each section of it, I move out till till the circle is finally to the world. You know, um, however, however it leads, the Holy Spirit will lead you to pray. But anyway, the point being is that this has really gave me good Good structure to really, because if you ever sit down and pray and you hit your knees and you don't even know what to say, <laughs> you don't
0: even
1: know what to pray. Amen. And so to, to use this as a guideline and then make it personal for beginning with you and then stretching it out of your circle to more and more people. Um, just I think it's been a tremendous help to me in my life for my prayers.
0: Yeah. Good way to look at it. Good way to look at it. Anything else? Anybody else? Comments? Questions? All right. I'll close this out. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for today, Lord. Just thank you for everyone here tonight, Lord. Just uh, thank you for this time to come together. Just a privilege to come to your house, Lord, and just worship you. And uh, thank you for this lesson, Lord. And just uh, pray that, that our minds were open, our hearts were open, Lord, and we received something from this message, Lord, that we can apply to our life. To give you glory and honor, Lord, and to um, and to help us be more like your Son, so we can be light and salt in this world, Lord. Just uh, spreading the gospel, and uh, trying to make this world a better place, Lord. And we just uh, we thank you for giving us your strength and your spirit that we can get through this world, these tough times, Lord, and that you never leave us and forsake us, Lord. We know that we'll have trouble, Lord, but we also know that you'll always be there for us, Lord. And we can just uh, draw strength from that and. uh, draw peace from that as well lord so just thank you for all that you do thank you for jesus dying on the cross to forgive me and everybody in this room lord and just uh thank you for that glorious gift lord and just forgive us where we fall short where we focus on ourselves more than on you sometimes lord just forgive us for that and just uh, help us to stay focused on you and your kingdom lord and you said all this will be added to us lord so we just Look to that promise as we live our life day by day, as we try to follow you. And we just give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.